Okay, so Paul Tillich would tell you that God is real, but he would say that God doesn't exist because he's beyond existing. And that leads us to ask the question of like, well, okay, what's the nature of God? Without devolving into ontological spirals, as Mr. Tillich thinks he's so clever for pointing out. Well, today, in our modern theology series, he dodges the question really hard. Why? Because he thinks he knows history or something. The tension in the idea of God is reflected in the mythological imaginings concerning the nature of the gods, especially in the imagination of those who embrace the mythological type. Concrete concern impels the religious imagination to personify the divine powers, for man is radically concerned only about that which can encounter him on equal terms. Therefore, the person-to-person -person relationship between God and man is constitu cons constitutive for religious experience. Ah, you see, we can't believe God is transcendent and also personal at the same time. Our religious impulses demand that we think of God on such equal footing with us that we can interact with God. No, but as wrong as that is and how every theologian worth their salt would laugh Paul Tillich out of a room, he decides that he can just do this silly little survey without having answered the actual question about the nature of God or the quote-unquote idea of God as he likes to say. So he lists first a personal God. This indicates the concreteness of man's ultimate concern, but his ultimate concern is not only concrete, but also ultimate. And this brings another element into the mythological imagery. The gods are subpersonal and suprapersonal at one and the same time. Animal gods are not deified brutes, they are expressions of man's ultimate concern symbolized in various forms of animal vitality. This animal vitality stands for a transhuman divine demonic vitality. The stars as gods are not deified astral bodies, they are expressions of man's ultimate concern symbolized in the order of the stars and in their creative and destructive power. The subhuman, superhuman character of the mythological gods is a protest against the reduction of divine power to human measure. So what's he saying? He says that mankind's religious impulse and his quote-unquote ultimate concern leads us to personalize our deities. You don't have a slab that somehow created humanity and it's divine, but it's not personal, according to Paul Tillich. Now, he is ignoring religions like Shinto out there that do have very animal-like animal deities that don't speak with humans, that 
do not represent just animal vitality. No, they are just considered an animal deity. This also ignores all of pantheism. Because in very, very strict pantheistic religions, you don't have any sort of personhood to the uh, one being the all, the monad, the god that is everything. To the contrary, it's very impersonal, except in the manifestations of personhood found in human beings. So, pantheistic sects, when they take their pantheism seriously, do not hold to a personal deity. Tillich is just wrong here. The fact that there have been religions, pagan or otherwise, that are personal in their conception of deities does not mean that all of them are. But he's going to go ahead and ignore that because that makes his argument look bad. So he continues on now talking about polytheism. The mythological type of polytheism could not live without monotheistic restrictions. Here he's actually going to make a good point. Be excited, it's one of the few. One of these restrictions is manifest in the fact that the god who is addressed in a concrete situation receives all the characteristics of ultimacy. In the moment of prayer, the god to whom a man prays is the ultimate, the lord of heaven and earth. This is true in spite of the fact that in the next prayer, another god assumes the same role. What's he trying to say? He's saying that polytheism ultimately acts like theism, depending on which god you're praying to, if you are a polytheist. Polytheism isn't real, it's just one-at-a-time theism, as far as the practical aspect of it goes. If you go to ancient Greek magical papyri, they address their gods in very theistic terms. Same goes for Babylonian polytheism, etc. When a polytheist prays to a god, he flatters the god and blows smoke up its butt in order to get more of what he wants, because all polytheistic systems are practically transactional in nature. So then he restricts it to dualistic polytheism. The third type of polytheism is the dualistic, which is based on the ambiguity of the concept of the holy and on the conflict between divine and demonic holiness. Reminder, Paul Tillich does not define divine holiness and demonic quality the same way as you and I would. For him, holiness is either divine, i.e. humanity assigns holiness to it, or it is demonic. It demands and claims holiness for itself. God is not allowed to tell you that he's holy, you're supposed to tell him. Because in Paul Tillich's mind, the real God, the real buck-stops-here authority is mankind, not the actual divine Lord that created the heavens and the earth. So dualistic polytheism, I believe you would look at, say, Zoroastrianism as the prime example of that, is really just some confused mishmash of the nature of holiness and the nature of demonic holiness, according to Tillich. He's going to see everything through these lenses, as frustrating as that is. Just bear with him. 
we've refuted all of this stuff over and over and over again. But you might notice he's not actually talking about God as God is. He refuses to do that. He wants to dodge that question. So he continues with these little categories with the mythological. This is true also of the mythological type. The ruling gods dispossess the other divine beings. The demonic forces of the past are kept down, but the victorious gods themselves are threatened by old or new divine powers. They are not unconditional, and therefore they are partially demonic. The ambiguity in the sphere of the holy is not overcome by the great mythologies. This tells us a little bit more about how he defines demonic. He said before that something is demonic if it tells you that it is holy. And now we're understanding what he means by that because something that has to tell you it's holy is likely conditional. It is a contingent being and therefore cannot be divine in and of itself. It's making a false claim on account of its finitude, therefore it is demonic. It has some sort of power, it has some sort of transcendence, but it doesn't have it in and of itself. It has to claim it. Now, of course, that's just wrong. God can and does, as the universal creator of all things, he can tell you, yes, I'm holy. And he is telling the truth, and he is not demonic. That's just true, but Paul Tillich wants to deny freedom in God, doesn't he? So now he begins moving on to different kinds of monotheism. And here he will start with what he calls monarchic monotheism, but typically these days we call it henotheism. Let's hear what he has to say about it. Monarchic monotheism lies on the boundary line between polytheism and monotheism. The god-monarch rules over the hierarchy of inferior gods and godlike beings, essentially the Michael Heiser point of view. He represents the power and value of the hierarchy. His end would be the end of all those ruled by him. The conflicts between the gods are reduced by his power. He determines the order of values, therefore he can easily be identified with the ultimate in being and value. Which is what the Stoics did, for example, when they identified Zeus with the ontological ultimate. On the other hand, he is not secure against attacks from other divine powers. Like every monarch, he is threatened by revolution or by outside attack. Now, okay, this is your shot, right? We'll get to the chaser. The shot is, this is contingent. Even if there is a monarchic, theistic god in charge of everything, he's still under threat, just like uh, old Zeus from Greek mythology. So, that would make it demonic, wouldn't it? A conditional thing, which claims its own holiness and rules through hierarchy, is going to be demonic by Paul Tillich's definition. Now here's the chaser. There are elements of monarchic monotheism not only in many non-Christian religions, but also in Christianity itself. The Lord of Hosts, of whom the Old Testament and Christian liturgy often speak, is a monarch who rules over heavenly beings and spirits. 
Several times during Christian history, some members of these hosts have become dangerous for the sovereignty of the highest God. And he includes a footnote there, because of the danger of just what he said, uh, compare the warning against the cult of angels in the New Testament. Why does he have to put that footnote? Because if he's claiming that Christianity has a monarchic monotheistic element in it, he is inching toward the implication that Christianity's God is demonic. And he wants you to believe, you know, his theology, his heresies. He doesn't want you to be offended yet. So he's willing to put in these little clarifying points to keep you strung along. Even though his clarifying footnote doesn't actually demonstrate a real threat against God. Yes, there was a cult of angel worship, which St. Paul tells us to avoid in places like Colossians. Avoid worshiping angels, yes, but that's not those angels actually threatening God's sovereignty. A. Demons, fallen angels, couldn't actually do that. They cannot threaten the Lord God, and good angels aren't even going to think about it. This comes from mankind threatening believers. Heretics threatening believers, not angels threatening God. But then he moves on to what he calls mystical monotheism, and he has such a hard time defining it that I almost wanted to skip this over. But he, he gives an almost unqualified praise. It's just incoherent. The second type of monotheism is the mystical. Mystical monotheism transcends all realms of being and value and their divine representatives in favor of the divine ground and abyss from which they come and in which they disappear. All conflicts between the gods, between the divine and the demonic, between gods and things, are overcome in the ultimate which transcends all of them. The element of ultimacy swallows the element of concreteness. I suppose the only example of something that comes close to what he's trying to describe would be like Hinduism, where like the, the dances that the Hindu gods are doing and uh, the illusion of reality and the Hindu calendar of billions and billions of years and stuff kind of swallow up any importance you would find in Shiva or Vishnu or something. But there's elements of that regarding like an, an abyss that creates stuff accidentally in Greek mythology with their gods basically springing from a big old egg or in the poetic Eddas where uh, the impending Ragnarok or whatever with this world destroying serpent, I think, just destroys everything. Uh, even the gods are mortal and something higher than them, something that transcends them, destroys them. But Tillich wouldn't claim that Norse paganism is this. He wouldn't call it mystical monotheism, nor would he necessarily say that about Hinduism, especially because there's so many different kinds of Hinduism, not all of them agreeing with Advaita. So I don't understand where he's coming from on this one, but he likes it because it says ultimacy or something. He likes ultimate concern language, and he thinks about this very fondly. 
But now, after he's talked about these different polytheistic and theistic worldviews, Tillich wants to bring up the God of the Bible. And at first, attempt to defend him, to make you feel good. He's trying to trick you, as we're going to see. The God of Israel is the concrete God who has led his people out of Egypt. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. At the same time, he claims to be the God who judges the gods of the nations, before whom the nations of the world are as a drop in a bucket. This God who is concrete and absolute at the same time is a jealous God. He cannot tolerate any divine claim besides his own. Of course, such a claim could be what we have called demonic, the claim of something conditioned to be unconditioned. But this is not true in Israel. Yahweh does not claim universality in the name of a particular quality or in the name of his nation and its particular qualities. His claim is not imperialistic, for it is made in the name of that principle which implies ultimacy and universality, the principle of justice. The relation of the God of Israel to his nation is based on a covenant. So here he says, yeah, you know, everything I've been saying about what qualifies as demonic does apply to the God of the Bible. But I'm going to say that, yes, though he says he is unconditional, that he is holy, remember that he has, like, higher principles and stuff. So, like, yeah, he fits the bill of what I would call demonic, but I'm not going to call him demonic because he has morals or something, even though that was not a rubric for calling something demonic. What is Mr. Tillich doing here? Well, in the old days, we would call that lying. And he is lying by explanation and nuance. Nuance doesn't make you tell the truth. It doesn't mean that your contradiction or your bad statement suddenly isn't so bad anymore. Nuance oftentimes can just be used to lie. He said earlier, here's my definition of the demonic. And now he's saying the God of the Bible fits that rubric. Therefore, he's demonic. Now he says, but I'm not going to say that because now I'm adding in a qualifier that does not belong to my rubric and definition. He did not define demonic as the conditional claiming unconditionality and also not having morals. No, he did not do that. Now he adds that so that you don't get mad. Remember, during this time, as he's writing this around the 1950s, the fundamentalist and liberal battles in Christendom were still going on. But they were trying to worm their way in to conservative seminaries. So they want you to think what they think and believe what they believe, but they don't want to be so open about it that you just reject what they're saying and throw their garbage heretic theology in the trash. Paul Tillich thought that the God of the Bible is demonic. I half expect a rooster to crow because it sounds to me like this man is denying Christ. According to his own definitions and his own words, he just says that he's not going to say that about God. Because morals. Universal morals, I guess which is not a real excuse, it's not a real explanation. 
but he keeps digging, he keeps digging his hole, and he keeps getting deeper into it when he starts saying, Like the god of mystical monotheism, the god of exclusive monotheism is in danger of losing the concrete element in the idea of god. His ultimacy and universality tend to swallow his character as a living god. The personal traits in his picture are removed as anthropomorphisms which contradict his ultimacy, and the historical traits of his character are forgotten as accidental factors which contradict his universality. He can be amalgamated with a god of mystical monotheism or with a transformation of this god into the philosophical absolute. But one thing cannot happen, there can be no relapse into polytheism. So what's he saying here? He's saying that the concrete or real god of the Bible is threatened by transcendentals which are above him, just like his definition of mystical monotheism. So, like uh, henotheism or monarchical monotheism, God is threatened by rebellion. Like mystical monotheism, uh, God is threatened by something above himself. And, of course, like his definitions would say, he is conditional because he claims holiness for himself. Paul Tillich thought that my God is a demon, and it's pretty clear for somebody actually reading his words critically that he thinks that the God of the Bible needs to be replaced by something. Something that replaces the real God with a God that is wearing the real God as a costume. Let's look at how he talks about the Trinity which I'm not certain he believes because he's also going to dodge that question here. Trinitarian monotheism is not a matter of the number three. It is a qualitative and not a quantitative characterization of God. It is an attempt to speak of the living God, the God in whom the ultimate and the concrete are united. The number three has no specific significance in itself, although it comes nearest to an adequate description of life processes. Even in the history of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, there have been vacillations between Trinitarian and Binitarian emphasis, the discussion about the position of the Holy Ghost, and between Trinity and Quaternity, the question about the relation of the Father to the common divine substance of the three personae. The Trinitarian problem has nothing to do with the trick question, how one can be three and three one. The answer to this question is given in every life process. The Trinitarian problem is the problem of the unity between ultimacy and concreteness in the living God. Trinitarian monotheism is concrete monotheism, the affirmation of the living God. Don't let that fool you into thinking that he really believes in the Trinity. He starts comparing the quote-unquote Trinitarian problem with perennial features in history, like polytheism having a daddy god, a mommy god, and a baby god, 
or mystical monotheism. He calls out Hinduism as talking about the, the Brahman principle, where Brahman, Shiva, and Vishnu form one Brahman, or whatever. He talks about all of this stuff as though the Trinity is somehow not unique to Christianity. Here's things that look like it, therefore everybody has a Trinity problem. Really, this is what he's saying. He won't tell you he believes in it, but he will tell you that a bunch of different mediators talk about it. The first group of these mediators is made up of hypostasized divine qualities like wisdom or glory. The second group are the angels, the divine messengers, who spe represent special divine functions. The third is the divine figure through whom God works the fulfillment of history, the Messiah. And so he talks about how Jesus is this concrete living tension between the concreteness of God and the absolute, the transcendent about him. But notice here he will say, when early Christianity calls Jesus of Nazareth the Messiah and identifies him with the divine Logos, the Trinitarian problem becomes the central problem of religious existence. He says the early church says that, not we say that, not theology demands we understand that, not I say that. That's, oh, that's the early church talking about that and bringing up the Trinity. He doesn't say that he believes it. He wants you to think that he does, because he says nice things, but he doesn't necessarily believe it. Tricky, tricky, tricky.